Well, if you, if you brought a Bible today or uh, your, your phone, maybe your, app, your Bible app on your phone, John chapter 13 is what we're going to look at today. It is the deep and brilliant waters that we'll be swimming in for the next several weeks. But chapter 13 today, it's deep and brilliant because Jesus is going to answer to us the purpose of life. Purpose of the life of Jesus is the same as our purpose in life. What, are, what is the purpose? What do we do with all the choices that we're making that we're trying to make count forever. There's that, that saying that every breath wounds and the last one kills. What do we do with all those breaths? Well, uh, the answer actually has been given to us in the, around 1650 in what's called the Westminster Confession and particularly the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very first question, this is like a, if you understand the catechism, you understand what you believe. And the first question is this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose. That's what our choices are supposed to be leading towards. And Jesus is going to exemplify that today as it begins this, this, this final few hours of his life. We're going to see that Jesus is glorifying God and he's going to enjoy him to get forever. We're in a series called The Upper Room, and it's in John chapters 13 to 17. And those are five chapters of Jesus' most profound teachings to his most intimate followers. Profound teachings to intimate followers. So we're going to spend some time reading that. Now today, especially, things change rather dramatically because in chapters 13, verse 30, where, where we'll start, the dominoes begin to fall. And the first domino falls because it has been nudged by, ironically, Satan himself, who's now been released in the soul of Judas, and Judas is now going to leave as he earns his money and his place in salvation history. It's going to happen after Jesus gives him that cue that it's okay to leave now. Look at verse 30. Look for two key words. I want to tell you, look for two key words. One of them will be pretty easy to see. Here it is. And so, after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. So he's gone. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said this, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. Well, one of those words is pretty obvious. The other one is the word now. Now, it all starts. This is, in John's writing, he'll be referring to the hour has come. And the hour is this epic climax of the life of Jesus Christ. And if we had a stopwatch, when, Ju when the door closes behind Judas, click. It's all believers in the room. He's going to institute the Lord's Supper. He's going to take Passover and add something, a new meaning to that. And here we go. The glorification begins. Now, glorify is used, what, five times in two sentences here. So let's find out what that word means. It has kind of two applications or, or definitions. The first one is that in kind of this, in a secular way, the word is used to, to prove something good or to validate or to vindicate to witnesses of a particular event. Validate or vindicate. To, to show something, to display something. So in the Old Testament, 
God's presence was validated or vindicated or shown or displayed in what, in brilliance, in blinding brilliance. So much so, uh, it, it's referred to as Shekinah glory is the phrase that's used. And when Moses had an experience with Shekinah glory, his hair was bleached white and so was his, his face was radiating. That's what happened. That's how he was experiencing the glory of God, that blazing presence. In the Newer Testament, the word here is used now, this God revealing his blazing presence. In John's description, it will be at the cross because that's when Jesus will be high and lifted up and everybody will be looking up at him. And in that, that is the, the, the purpose of God revealed. And righteousness is vindicated in that event because in the death of Jesus Christ, God proves himself to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is, is proving that to be a fact, and he's also showing or displaying or revealing that he is, in fact, the word of God, which is how John starts his gospel. So that's how gl Jesus is glorified in the context of revealing or vindication. A second wor uh, word that could be used to describe the word glorified is, is worship. It's, it's to, to give praise. The, the Greek word is similar to the word, and we're, we're, we get the word doxology, and that's why we sang the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God all the creatures here below. Praise him above all you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise, 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 praise. <laughs> Glorify means to exalt, to worship. And the cross becomes this, this climax event in the life of Jesus in the context of glorification because it is, it is the complete expression of his obedience to the Father. It, the, the full expression of obeying the will of the Father is culminated at the cross. After that, the resurrection part is, comes easy, but that's where he's, he's showing himself. So Individually, it's on the cross itself, it's his death, but collectively, the next three days, he'll be glorifying, he's showing himself to be glorified because it's the vindication of the teachings of Jesus Christ. It is the, the proof of the claims of Jesus being more than just a prophet, but being the Savior, God himself, and it's a display of his obedience to the completion all the way to the end for all of creation to see the visible and the invisible. And that's why, praise Christ, from whom all glory is being revealed. When we say we want to become like Christ in all of life, which is somewhat of a motto here at Grace, because that's the definition of holiness, becoming like Christ in all of life, we want to become like Christ in the way he glorifies God. And how do we do that? We reveal the wonders of God in our life, in our obedience, our expression of obedience. And we praise God in the way we, we give and serve and care for other people. It's revealing and it's praising. Jesus states that to be true. The glorification hour has begun. And now he's going to tell his disciples something that's, well, shocking. <laughs> Verse 33 says, Little children, this is Jesus, little children, I am with you just a little longer, and you will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, 
I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus says, he starts this with the phrase little children. It's the only time he's going to call his, his own disciples little children. <laughs> and this is a very affectionate term, as you can imagine, like from a father to toddlers. Okay, little kids, I'm going to tell you something. And why does he use this affectionate term? Because look what happens after that. He says, he says I, where I am going, you cannot follow. He's, he's saying he's leaving <laughs> and they can't. They can't find him. Look, we say sometimes, like hyperbolically, we say, that's my worst enemy, or that's my worst nightmare. This is literally their worst nightmare. Picture them as young children. There's no mother in this story, so there's only daddy. And daddy says, my little children, daddy's leaving. And you can't come with him. And they're stunned. And if you could, in your imagination, it's been helpful for me this week, is to picture these 11 men, but now as little toddlers, and Jesus comes in and says, hey, little buddies, I'm leaving. And where I'm leaving, you can't follow. Now, if you had a room full of pre-K boys and you told them that as their daddy, what happens? Like in unison, like a choir. They all start wailing and crying because this is their worst nightmare. And if you doubt me, Peter's response in verse 37 and 38, he just says, Wait, you know, I don't stop crying, everybody. I don't think we heard him right. Okay, Lord, uh, where are you going? Because where you're going, I can follow you. I will follow you even to death. That's how shocked he is. That's a natural response from a toddler. And Jesus says, I know you won't even follow me to death, Peter. But anyway, the point is, I mean, think about it. For three and a half years, Jesus is the son of these 11 planets that they've been circling. Their whole world, their lives have been centered around Jesus. And not just, you know, any leader with disciples. <laughs> Can you imagine their experience of being with Jesus himself? But not only that, like the miracles that have been taking place all around them. And then they're doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And then he says, they're, he's leaving. And they like, look, there's two choices, Jesus. One, you're not going to leave. Or two, you can leave, but we can follow. You know what's not available? You leaving us, not following. You stay with us. And Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm leaving. And as you would imagine it, they're feeling like orphans. Now, Jesus will acknowledge that, and he's, I know some of you have read ahead, and he says, I won't leave you like orphans. Well, let's like be in this moment, because right now, they have one daddy, no mom, and he said he's gone, and they're afraid. They are feeling helpless and alone in an increasingly hostile world that's coming towards them, and they know the hostility is going to increase. And so after announcing that he's leaving and they can't follow, he answers that first set of fears of helpless and alone. You won't be alone. And so the next sentence says, look, a new commandment I'm giving you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I give this new commandment to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's saying, look, you won't be alone because now you guys can love each other. See, for three and a half years, I've been showing you how I love. You're supposed to have been practicing that. 
And now you get to love like everybody else has, like I've been loving you. So instead of it being like one way where like Jesus is loving these 11 guys, Jesus says, you're not going to feel like you're completely alone because now you get to love 10 other people in the same way I loved you. The men are looking around at those other 10 men going, yeah, well, okay, yeah, but no. I don't. And this love that they have for one another is not just for their own support in their feeling of aloneness. Look what the next verses say. And a new commandment I've given to you that you would love one another, even as I have loved you, you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're talking about glory again. Remember, one of the first ways that glory is defined is it's when it's this revelation or this vindication of something that you're trying to prove, especially towards people that don't believe it. He says, look, you're going to glorify God by how you love one another. You're going to glorify God by loving people the way I loved you in a different way. <laughs> it's it's going to be like the brand of what distinguishes you from other people. And so... Real quick, in summary, Jesus says, I'm leaving. You can't follow. They're saying we're going to be alone. He says, no, no, no. You're going to love one another in the same way I've loved you. You won't be alone. You're going to have a new kind of family, a deeper kind of love. And not only that, but the world will be puzzled by it. People will either be drawn to that kind of love or they will reject it out of hand but it's going to distinguish you from other people. This is, again, this is like the Jesus brand. This is a different look. It's the defining characteristic. If you, uh, if you looked at the disciple, uh, disciples of a Greek philosopher and said, well, what, what distinguishes them? You'd, you'd listen to them and they'd, it would be like their knowledge, their intellect, their maybe worldview, their figures of speech. Sure, yeah. That person's a disciple of Socrates. Plato was. And Plato had a disciple, Aristotle. And they sounded like they were disciples of each other. Jesus, no, 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 no. People are going to know you're my disciples because they're going to see my love in you facing outward. That's what's going to make the difference. That's the brand. So it's to keep them from feeling alone, and it's to give God glory in its display. That's why we love one another this way. Let's look a little closer at it, though, because he, he said something that's a little bit odd. You might have picked it up. Um, uh, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What's so new about that? I mean, it's, I mean, it's in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. That's in, the, that's in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible etched in glass back here love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and might and love your neighbor as yourself what's so new about that well let's look at that let me give you three ways that this is kind of a new command to a new kind of love and the first one is it's a new view of love it's a new view of love the love that he'll be the word he'll be using here is agape love and I know that's a pretty common word if you go to church or you read your Bibles. I don't think we can appreciate just the power of Jesus uh, like making agape love a prominent word. So there's five, but really four really popular Greek words for love. 
And agape love was one that was shunned and almost ignored in, in Greek literature outside of the Bible. The other loves were more popular. They're, they're more, more emotional. They're more sentimental. Agape love is volitional. <laughs> I mean, it's just a choice. It, like it's, it's choosing to sacrifice. It is, it is choosing to give. It's, it's choosing to serve. It's choosing to commit. It's not so much sentiment in that. The Greek word eros is popularly used because it's passionate for sure. It's physical love and sometimes even erotic love. Eros, that's where we get erotic. There's phileo, that's uh, brotherly love. Philadelphia is the, well, it's not the city of brotherly love, but it's the opposite of the city. Anyway, so it means deep friendships. And then there's a Greek word storge, which means a family love. It's this loyal commitment to one another. It's this, this word agape, I just, I just want to restate this. It's almost unique to Bible writing. It's very popular now, and it's on bumper stickers, but it's all but unique to, to Greek, or in Greek, except for the Bible. And one of the factors of agape love is that it's in contrast to the other ones that are more sentimental and emotional, and that you don't fall in and out of agape love. And when you hear people say, oh, I fell in love with someone or I fell, they can fall out of love with them if they fell into love with them. But from a marriage standpoint, at least biblically, that's not the love in the Bible, in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's describing and telling what love ought to look like between a husband and a wife and a wife and a husband. And it says, husbands, love your wife. And that love is agape love. It is choice to give and to serve and to sacrifice and to enjoy and to listen. It's an act of the will. Agape love is like the finest attributes of the other three plus this unconditional commitment. As a matter of fact, let me give you three qualities of agape love. It's a different view of love. There's three qualities of agape love and one of them is that it's unconditional. Unconditional, and you look at the way Jesus loved, love as I loved you, there was no condition attached. There was no one that Jesus wouldn't love. He loved Roman soldiers. He loved Jewish tax collectors for the Roman Empire. He loved prostitutes and religious teachers and zealots. He loved the rich and he loved the poor. He loved everyone, no qualifications. And even the people that rejected his love, that left him, he wept for them. No conditions. Agape love is unconditional. It is also unselfish. And one way of looking at that, that description is it's a, like a one-way love. You're not giving love so that you'll get love. It's pretty easy to give. Well, it's easier to give love when you receive love. But this is love with no expectations because the person you're choosing to love is either unable or unwilling to reciprocate. It's unconditional and it's unselfish and it's unlimited. And it's unlimited because you're charged or energized by the giving of agape love. Joy comes when you just give it out. It's so selfless and so unconditional. It's, it's so godlike that just expressing it is all a person needs. That's what un. That's what agape, this new view of love is. I give this new commandment, 
That's what he's referring to. This other part of the attribute of a new kind of commandment is a new example of love. A new commandment I've given you that you love one another even as I have loved you. And in the context of where they are right then and there, like the immediate context, there are two blinding attributes of what that means. How is Jesus loving these disciples? How are they experiencing that love? The first kind of love that they can see right in front of them is love that's shown in obedience. Now, we'll see this a lot more in chapters 14 and 15, so I'm saving that description and explanation for then. But it goes like this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. And I'm obeying the Father because I love the Father, and that's what it looks like. If you obey me, it's, that's what it looks If you obey me, you love me. If you love me, you obey me. So they're, they're integrally connected. We'll explain that more. But that's what they're experiencing right then and there. The second attribute of the love that Jesus is, is showing in an example is the sacrificial humiliating love that we looked at last week where he was washing the disciples' feet. I mean, the towel is still wet when he's saying, you need to love one another as I just have loved you. So, love one another. This is a new commandment. You give this love and you, or you, you receive this love from Jesus and you give this love. I'd love to just like take a quick pause before we move on. And stop and ponder this kind of love. I hope most of all of you have received this. I want us to just like have a moment of silence and reflection. We'll try to be a little mystical here. And, and ponder that kind of love. Let's do this, okay? If you would. Just close your eyes. Maybe even bow your head. Maybe if you want, turn your palms up. And could we just meditate quickly on adjectives, descriptions that you have in your mind if you've read through the story of Jesus in the way that he's cared for and loved the people around him. And then as you're thinking of, of those stories, those attributes, those descriptions, could you receive that love so that you could give that love? Let's think about the way Jesus loves for just a second. Lord, we just enjoy the constant predictability of, of your unconditional love, that it is caring, it nurtures, your love is demanding, it's challenging at times. Your love is forgiving. You have forgiven me and I receive that from your spirit that I might give that same kind of unconditional unselfish, unlimited love to my brothers and sisters that I might know and experience that I am not alone in a hostile world, that you didn't leave me as an orphan. You left me with family. Yeah, we praise you and glorify you because of that. Everybody said, amen. We have a new commandment with a new experience of love because we have a new view of love and we have a new example of love. And then lastly, I want to show you this. It has a whole new impact of love. This is the Jesus brand I'm referring to. And I'm not saying that because it's a new way of 
explaining some sort of marketing technique. I'll show you a third century quote later on, but this has been the, the thing that defines the Christian life. It's, it's how we distinguish ourselves as followers of Yahweh. I mean, think about it. If you were a deeply dedicated and committed follower of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, what would that look like? Well, it would mean that you would either raise Jewish or you're already Jewish or you converted to Judaism. You became part of that covenant community. That was the point. And so you, you, you had a different diet. More than likely, you certainly dressed differently. There's always that circumcision thing that was required. The sacrificial system that you were involved in made it, it look different and you were standing aside. And I would hope ethics of surrendering to the ethical nature of Yahweh would push you over here to say, yeah, you're not like the rest of the culture. But in the Newer Testament, what does it say? This unconquerable love is going to be that single element that says they're not like anything else anywhere else. And when the Christian faith, when the church in general and then individually, the local expressions, when they do that, it sweeps through a civilization. In the New Testament, you know, or in the early Testament, the first couple centuries, this is what happens because they took this for what it was. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command. He's not saying, hey, you know, give this your best try. And if it doesn't work out, I can understand. No, you do this. You love like I love. We wear stickers or bracelets. What would Jesus do? Jesus says, what would, how would Jesus love is the question. We should love that same way. And when we do that, we glorify God because we reveal to all of creation the nature of God himself. We praise God by vindicating the way Jesus loves. And if you're wondering if, if this is true in your life, you could just like when your friends or your neighbors or family, what, people outside, when they see the way you love your husband or wife or your children or fellow Christians, do they like understand or, or are they pondering where does that come from and how do you do that? And, I, and some are drawn towards that and some are, are repulsed by it. But the point is it's different and it's supposed to show up in our everyday lives. That's how we put it on display. When outsiders step in, and have an observation about the local church, they're supposed to be enamored with the, the oddness of this new view and new example and new like, branding of what this love looks like. Uh, Tertullian wrote in the third century, this is why I keep saying branding, uh, he says, it is, mainly the disease, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that leads many to brand us as Christians. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they're already even ready to die for one another. In the early church, like their commitment to this unconditional, unrelenting, you know, unselfish love is what transformed the culture. And in that system back then, it was radical to have that kind of unconditional love because the Roman system was almost like a caste system, uh, not too different from today, where it was utilitarian. In other words, you know, if people had value, they, 
they would befriend and show like some friendship love towards one another. But if you were a if you were a baby or real old, if you couldn't be used in some context of labor or employment, if you were female, <laughs> if you if you didn't deserve the love, you didn't get the love. And they had a lot of reasons why you didn't deserve it in that culture. And then in comes the church where, P, where the church didn't care of your ethnicity or your income or your ability to give back you, your utilitarian value. You just had a community of people that have almost nothing in common except this one thing in common, and they're trying to love each other like the Savior loved them. That is what changed the world. The people understood that they were not helpless, more on that later, power of the Holy Spirit, and they were not alone because they had a family that wasn't blood, was spirit. And people were drawn to that or they were repulsed by it, but they took note of it. Here's what uh, Felix, a uh, lawyer in the first century, second century said, they love each other even without being acquainted with one another. And then a person hostile to the church, Jillian the Apostate, and that's not like an evil title, Jillian the Apostate, he said this, their teacher has an implanted in their belief system that they are somehow all related to one another. A church has to be known for its love. I mean, if it's anything but that, we're missing it. It's easy to be known as a church with great vision, but without love, it doesn't matter. Or a, teach, a church that's known for its teaching and, and, and the people that are in it are so knowledgeable about the Bible. If that's it, if that's the primary reason that that church is known, they're missing the point. It could be known for miracles and, and miraculous healings, but if, it's not, if that's the primary, it's, it's not love, it's, it's wrong. Even generosity, he'll do anything and give anything, but not in love. That's not following Jesus. That's not the glory that he was referring to. It is such a descriptive, primary description of the church in general, but even the local expression that Paul writes this. If I speak to you with tongues of men and angels and don't have love, I've become like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge and have all kinds of faith to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and I deliver my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits us nothing. See, the singular primary attribute of a church and a follower of Christ is this agape love. The love that we receive from Jesus. And is it any wonder when, like our, our youth, they're all over on mission trips. They're, some are leaving today and some are um, right now in, the Phil, or in the, um, Asia. And what do we pray for them? We pray that they would love each other in ways that only Christians can because that kind of love transcends culture and language. Though, wherever they are, they won't need to know what language is spoken or what their backgrounds are if they're loving one another or if they're not. And if they're not, we need not listen because we can go to places like a gym and find people that are like us or some social engagement to where we can just be around people that we enjoy. 
But this kind of love, it's different. I've been thinking all week about, you know, this kind of love that glorifies God, that vindicates his truth in his love, one that shines a light brightly from his church to a people and how it transforms, there's two parts of it, remember, and it transforms or interests the people outside of the church that other people will know they're Christians by their love for one another. And I've thought of the many people in our flock here and the videos that we have in our bank. And then I just thought, you know what? Let me just tell you about my story. And I just, I said it wrong. It's not my story. It's the way this church has treated me over the 30-something years here. And I want you to hear two things. One, it's not my story. It's the church's story. And how other people outside of my circle have been perplexed by the love that I've received. I just want you to see that it's not unique. It's one of the best, one of the better parts of when we say every believer is a minister here. Sometimes people look at ministers up here and by constantly telling people every believer is a minister, we, we bring everybody to a level playing field. And one of the attributes of our pastoral staff is you guys don't look up to us and, and, we, and you don't look down at us. We're all just equal. And so I'm telling you, everything I'm telling you about my reception of love from this congregation is like many other stories. This one I just happen to know pretty well because I was there. So 30 years ago when we came here, more than 30, we didn't have children. And the previous pastors didn't have children. And we didn't know how to raise children. And this church loved us in that context. The volunteers that worked in the children's ministry and taught our kids some things that we couldn't teach them and the mentoring that received my wife and the mothers of preschool program and the guys that were assigned to my life to make sure, you know, I could be a good husband, a good uh, dad. That, that love was given to me because I just got involved. When our kids were in the teenage years and we had to do the giant handoff where we realized they weren't listening to us anymore and we didn't have influence we were able to turn them over to the volunteers in our student ministry, our junior high and high school. And we would just say, well, go call them and they'll tell whatever they tell you to do. Just do that. We could trust that that would be godly, sacrificial, loving advice. And we were mentored in the teen years as well. The church loved us like Christ loved the people in the church. When my mother was sick, I had only been here a couple of years and my mother was sick unto death, they gave me all the time off I wanted, especially in the last year that I could run to San Antonio and see her as much as I wanted. And what was especially interesting, I don't know, provocative, especially to my friends, was at my mom's funeral, it's as though the whole office took off and a lot of people from Grace drove to San Antonio. And, you know, when the funeral was over, it was relatively small. It, front row family stands up and turns around and looks who's there. And there were so many people from our church that my family didn't understand, like, who are these people <laughs> and why are they here? And I said, they're people that are trying to love me the way that Christ loved the church. Three times I have uh, absolutely spent myself. I do that. I do it well, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. I just wring myself out and then become like crazy. Uh, irrational. And all three times, people that loved me sat me down and just said, hey, we got we to gotta get you right. And listen, it wasn't, it's like, we don't love you because you work at the church. 
We, we pay you because you work at the church. We love you because you're a challenge to love, and we love a good challenge. <clears throat> and so we just like seeing what would happen if it happened. And each time they just said, we got to get you well and put you back together. They loved me. And they do that for people that are involved here, the people that are connected. When my, my, my older brother died rather suddenly about 10 years ago, I tell you, I did not cry alone. There were so many people that came around. And when we couldn't find a church in San Antonio to, to host it, people said, well, why don't we host it? And then people in the church came out to my house and did all the things I've been working on for 10 years so I could host people coming over. And people lent me cars. <laughs> they brought over food. And then, since my brother and I were just one year apart in school, this, the people coming to this from around the country were not just like the Cassidy's from um, Connecticut and New England, but like people from high school and college that, my, that overlapped with my brother and myself that were when I was a pirate. Those were not the great years of my life. And that, that group of people, those old friends and my immediate family, I ran out of words I couldn't talk anymore about the choices I've made about following Christ. They weren't going to understand it. I couldn't explain it. Let's just move on with our lives, right? And then, and then, you know, we provided this service. And my friends from high school, college, and immediate family, they watched all of this love, this humbling service love. And they said, what is this place? And I said, it's grace the way we name it. This is what you get in a church like this. And I'll say this again. It wasn't because of me that I work here or anything else. We almost had a funeral yesterday for a sister that I've never met and her church, it's not too far, it's like Lakeway area. They didn't have a building big enough. He's a very popular man and they were looking and some guy at the gym called me and said, I've heard about your church. I know about you guys. Could you host this funeral for this woman? And I, you bet. And our church will love her, a sister we've never met, because she's lost you know, husband that loved her dearly for 33 years. What can we do? Because this church is known for its love. And I just want to thank you for that. I've been on the receiving end of that. And I want you to be on the receiving end of it as well. I want you to like figure out a way to get involved and get connected because if you do, people will love you here. They'll fulfill the last and newest commandment and that is to love one another the way Christ loved. And you'll get a chance to love other people the way Christ has loved you. And this love that we're receiving from the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus Christ, and we get to give it to people and we get to receive it to people, and it changes lives. It will change your life. Do what you need to do to get connected in a church that's known for its love, and this church, it's known for its love. I wanted to thank you for that. I want to tell you, let's, let's keep that going. That's how you define what's glorifying to God. You can glorify God in this way. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you're to love one another. And there's more. 
And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And when you do that, you will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why don't you join me in prayer? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. I pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Lord, we are so grateful for the love that we have received from you, that you glorify the Father in your obedience, and you glorified and vindicated and validated the love of the Father by being obedient to the point of the cross. The resurrection validated and vindicated that you are God in flesh, and your promises are true, and your love is transcendent. And that's the transcendent love that we have. It's unconditional and unrelenting and unilateral. Lord, help us be that type of lover. We have a cancer in us. It's in our souls. It's pride. It keeps us from enjoying receiving your love and giving your love. I'd ask that you would help cure that with your grace. Let us continually be known as a church that loves well. And we'd ask that you'd bless us and bless us indeed. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.